Well, last week uh, we were looking at a couple of verses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, on uh, remembering God by uh, the mouth of Moses had told the children of Israel before they came into the promised land that they needed to remember all the journey, 40 years of wilderness wanderings, remember all the way that the Lord has led you. And uh, on that we considered how we need to remember the way the Lord has led us on our journey from spiritual darkness, spiritual blindness, ignorance of the truth, into the marvellous light of gospel grace and the knowledge of Christ. Um, And all this ties in, of course, with being ready, as we saw two weeks ago, to be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks us about the hope that's in us. If you're a believer, you have a hope. We who believe uh, the witness that God has given of himself, we've got a solid hope of heaven a hope of eternal life, a hope of unending, intimate communion with God who is our creator. And this belief, this faith, defines our view of life. It shapes how we think about death. It shapes our thinking in daily living, in knowing God, in seeking his wisdom. We need wisdom from God. We need wisdom from God. It... uh, Moulds what we do in terms of prayer, telling him our heart's desire. We commune with God. We don't just academically know that there is a God like we might know about some historical character. This is about knowing God. This is about not knowing about God, but knowing him, knowing him. You know, as you know a friend, as you know somebody intimately, as you know them. This is, this is knowing God in this way, telling him our heart's desire being guided as he speaks to us through his word. His word, this book, this book, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. And speaking of light, the Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I might have those the wrong way around, the lamp and the light, but you know, the the, the meaning is exactly the same either way. This word of God guides his people through this life. And it all follows from a belief of what is called the gospel. The gospel, gospel simply means good news. The good news of God. It's the old, old story, as the old chorus used to say, the old, old story, it is ever new. The old, old story, uh, ever new. It's the story that has been the same, valid, from the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, right the way through to the end, to the triumph of God's kingdom, when Christ comes again. So I thought this morning, let us be reminded of the true gospel. This passage that Stephen read for us, Romans chapter 3, I know is very familiar to very many people, but let again us look at it and be reminded of what it's saying. The whole of the epistle to the Romans, of course, is, is preeminent amongst the epistles as, as the clearest definition of the true gospel of God. And this is why we come here. The gospel is everywhere throughout the scriptures, that you, you cannot um, read the scriptures without coming to a knowledge of God's good news concerning salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said the whole scripture, what does it speak of? It speaks of him. There was a man 2,000 years ago, walking with some disciples, and he said, these scriptures are they which speak of me. And he taught his disciples how to see him and to understand the gospel in all the scriptures. So in Romans, it's very clearly set forth. In um, 
Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, you only need to turn a page to get there. Paul says this, writing to the Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the good news of the salvation of God in Christ. Why? Why, Paul? Why are you not ashamed? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the dynamism of God unto salvation. Who to? Who to? To everyone that believeth. What, Jew or Gentile? Oh, both. To the Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile. He's not ashamed of it. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the power of God unto salvation. And the whole of chapter 1 establishes Paul in his very, very logical um, laying out of the truth of God and the reality of life and death and eternity. He establishes the reality of God in the face of human belief because the natural man naturally doesn't see the things of the Spirit of God, as the Scripture tells us. They're foolishness to him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Where do you get spiritual discernment? You get it from God. Lighten my eyes, O Lord, to see things in your word concerning Christ. So Paul establishes the reality of God in the face of of human unbelief, and he lays out the charge against fallen man. You read chapter 1 for yourself, and then he goes into chapter 2, and uh, of course the chapter divisions were put by some monk many years ago, but nevertheless we've retained them because they're extremely useful for referencing. But chapter 2 uh, says, well, surely that's, that's for the people that are not religious at all. What about the religious folks? Surely they're doing pretty well. And chapter 2, Paul says, you religious folks, you're no better at all. You're just the same. You don't think you're in any better condition whatsoever. You are not. All has sin, have sinned. As this uh, chapter, verse, chapter 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So then he goes on into chapter 3 and um, he gets down to verse 9 and he says, what then? Are we, are we Jews, because Paul was a Jew, he was writing as a Jew, and he was writing to Gentiles in Rome, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Are we better than them? No, in no wise, in no way. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. We're all by nature sinners. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, that that trait of humanity was passed down to all his progeny, all of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As it is written in the Psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. The way, which way? The way of God, the narrow way to the life, the narrow way to the celestial city, as Bunyan called it. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. He is quoting one of the Psalms where a thousand years before Paul wrote this, David had written these very things. King David had written these very things. Their throat is an open sepulchre, a grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps of snakes is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. It's an indictment of humankind, isn't it? It's an indictment of the society in which we live. You might say that about the society in which we live today. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We hear of it all of the time. And the way of peace they have not known. Why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
There's no fear of... This is a summary. This is a summary of God's indictment of mankind in general as sinners falling short of his glory. The character and nature of God is absolute perfection. And God cannot tolerate that which is not absolute perfection. In verse 18, it says, what's at the root of it all? There is no fear of God before their eyes. You say, oh, that's a, that's a, a weird ancient idea that we should fear God. No, the word of God says that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you would know true wisdom, if you would have true knowledge of eternal things, then begin with this a reverential fear of the one who is God. The, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so he says in verses 19 and 20, he sums it up. Now we know that what things soever the law said, the law, the law of God's perfect standard of righteousness, the scriptures, not just 10 commandments, but includes them, but the law, which is the whole of the word of God as he has given it in his word. We know that whatsoever things the law saith, it says to them who are under the law. Who's under the law? You and me. That's how we were made. All mankind, made in the image of God, were under the law of God. And what does it say? It says what God requires. And what is the reaction to that? To any who will hear it, to any who will open their ears to hear what God says about his righteousness and our condition. Uh, but, 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 excuse, excuse, excuse. No, no, that every mouth may be stopped. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world, without exception, may become guilty before God. And he concludes that by the deeds of the law, by the things that we try to do to keep the righteous requirements of God, by the things that we try to do to make us acceptable to God, he says, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You cannot get right with God by trying to keep the law. What's the law for? By the law is the knowledge of sin. It just tells us what sin is and what we are. Each of us, as we are, are justly judged by the justice of God. And God is holy. We read that he is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He cannot look upon sin. The angels, the sinless angels in glory, in that vision in Isaiah chapter 6, they shield their eyes and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. No, the law of God only illuminates our sin and our separation from God. That's what Isaiah 59 says, your sins have separated you from God and shows us how far short we fall of the standard because in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, Paul, I believe it's Paul anyway, Paul writes that we must aim for peace with all men. Yes, I think we'd all agree with that. But he says, and follow holiness, righteousness. Follow that without which, if you don't have it, no man shall see the Lord. Do you hope that you will go to be in the presence of God when you die? If you're not as righteous as God, you will not go into the presence of God. That says it clearly. Righteousness, holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. The true life of God, eternal life, is only attained by those 
who are as righteous as God. We read in the book of Revelation weeks, months ago, again and again, nothing that defiles can enter God's heaven. Nothing that is remotely sinful can go into God's heaven. So we're left with this fleeting vapour, this mist of existence in a veil of tears, in the valley of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 calls it. To spend eternity with God, we must be judged as just by him. But, you know that verse I'm always quoting from Job, the oldest book in the Bible, Job chapter 9, verse 2. How should a man be just with God? Knowing what we are by nature, how can we be just with God? Well, verse 20 says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. It isn't by the good works that we do that we will be made right with God. Is that just an isolated text? Maybe I'm taking it out of context. No, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. There you go, it's there again but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Into Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. As many as are of the works of the law, that's all of us as we are in our fleshly condition, we're under the curse of God. We're under the curse. We're under God's curse over sin. For it is written in the book of God, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do. Absolute perfection all the time is the minimum requirement. But that no man is justified by the law, that no man meets that requirement, is evident. For the scripture says, those who are just before God and judged fit for his kingdom, they live not by the works of the law, but by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them, works of the law, shall live by them, and he's under a burden he can never lift. But here is the gospel. Christ has redeemed us from that curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Well, all of this thing about us being under the curse. Where is the good news? Where is the gospel in this, you might ask? False religion, you know, and most of what calls itself Christianity, proclaims this law works righteousness. They do. That's their message. Go and listen to them. Well, no, don't go and listen to them. <laughs> if you don't want to waste your time, don't go and listen to them. But that's what they proclaim, is law works righteousness. Many of its adherents, many of these religious adherents, many of these so-called Christian religious adherents are in for a shock when it comes to the day of judgment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, he said this, Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all sorts of good religious works in your name? We went preaching the gospel. We went giving uh, good, good gifts to poor people. We went doing all sorts of good works. Surely we have made ourselves qualified for heaven, is what he's talking about. And Jesus said, and I will say to them, depart from me, you who do evil. It is evil not to believe the gospel of Christ. So how can I get the righteousness which is required 
by God? And the answer, of course, is in verses 21 to 31 of Romans 3. It's the gospel of redeeming grace. Follow it with me. I'm going to be pretty quick, but I just want to encapsulate it. You know, it's good to be reminded. This is the thing. This is what triggered this. Remember, last week, remember the foundation of the gospel. Verse 21. You see, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God that we must have if we want to see him, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Manifested? Made open. Shown clearly. Displayed. The righteousness of God that we must have, the righteousness of God without doing law works, is made open. Being witnessed. Is this some brand new idea, Paul? Have you just suddenly plucked this out of thin air? No, he says it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? It's the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. Thousands of years of the Old Testament scriptures says exactly the same thing. He said, really? Does it? Read it. Read it. It's in there. If God will give you eyes to see it, it's in there. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. What is? Even the righteousness of God, which we must have. You know, follow after righteousness, without which no man shall see the Lord. The righteousness of God is what we must have. The righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. You see, it's openly manifested and declared. The whole of the Bible, the law and the prophets, it's revealed. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 17 says, in the gospel, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed. What does it mean from faith to faith? From various commentators say various things, but John Gill, who I like, says, it's revealed from God who is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness to the faith of men. It's revealed from God to Christ as a man when he came. It's revealed from faithful preachers to faithful hearers. It's revealed from the Old Testament scriptures and echoed in the New Testament scriptures. It's revealed from one degree of faith to another degree of faith as a believer grows in grace and knowledge. You know, this, this journey, the, you know, we, we're thinking about the Israelites and their 40-year journey, but the Christian life is that journey from a humble beginning all the way through. And as Isaiah says in, in one place, it's layer upon layer. Not all at one go. Layer upon layer. Precept upon precept. Bit by bit, God teaches us the full compass of his truth and of his word. So verse 22, this righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. This is a righteousness established by what? The faith of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You see, lots of people teach that your righteousness is yours because you have made a decision to believe God. Do you know something? That's completely untrue. And yet it is one of the most widely promulgated errors of the so-called Christian world. No, this is the faith of Jesus Christ that establishes the righteousness of God. It's the faithful works of Jesus Christ for any and all who believe it. It is Christ's faith as a man in obedience to God the Father, in all of his purposes of saving grace. 
It says in Philippians chapter 2, Paul again writing to the Philippians about Jesus Christ. He said that he, was, he humbled himself. He became a man. He laid aside the glory of heaven and he became obedient. How far did he become obedient to the purpose of God the Father? He became obedient as far as a shameful death. Even the death of the cross, that was the most shameful death in those days. It was reserved for the worst criminals. And he, God manifest, God become man, God incarnate, was obedient and submitted to that death. Why? That there he might pay the price. It was, let me just show you one verse. And again, I quote it often. It's Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24 to show how the Old Testament prophesied uh, these things. In verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, uh, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. The, the weeks are heptads or sevens of years. Um, and this was written about 400 and odd years before Christ came, 457 years, something like that before the Messiah came. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. So this was looking forward from about 450 odd BC. Upon thy, upon thy holy city, to do what? To finish the transgression. And to make an end of sins. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. That surely means reconciliation between sinners and God. To make reconciliation for iniquity. God cannot overlook sin, but someone's coming who will make reconciliation for iniquity. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Righteousness that qualifies you to see God, to spend eternity with him and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. You see, it says in the very next verse, it, it carries on and saying that it's from this marker in time until that marker in time unto the Messiah, the Prince, that's Christ coming, shall be seven weeks and three. And I know it's complicated, but there it is clearly prophesied that Christ is coming to do that which we in and of ourselves as sinners before the justice of God cannot do. It's Christ's faithful completion of all righteousness as judged by the law. It is the righteousness, righteousness which makes his people the righteousness of God in him. You know that other verse I'm always quoting, but it's so important. Lay it to heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Christ and Christ alone. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who never sinned. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. How did he make him to be sin? I don't understand it. But God judicially and legally loaded his precious son, the manifestation of the unknowable God, he loaded him with all the sins of his people. Why? So that he, as the infinite God, yet contracted to the span of a man, a real man, but yet a man without sin, the Passover lamb, that he loaded with that sin would bear divine wrath and that he would suffer the penalty due to that sin as the substitute of his people. And so that hymn says, in my place, this is the testimony of a believer. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. By his being made the sin of his people, who are his people? Those who believe him. And paying its debt, 
to the holy justice of God. What's the debt to the justice of God? God says, the soul that sins, it shall die. In the day that you eat thereof, it was said to Adam and Eve, you shall surely die. And die, the life is in the blood. The blood was shed. Christ shed his precious blood as the payment for the sins of his people. It's a mysterious divine transaction. I do not understand it. I do not understand. I can't equate it with human justice, but I know this. God has declared it to be the case. And God, who is the sovereign over the whole universe, if he says it is thus, it is thus. His people's sin debt is wiped out. Who are his people? Those that believe in him. Who are his people? Those whom he loved with an everlasting love. His people are made as righteous as God in terms of judgment. And they're qualified to enter God's kingdom of peace and righteousness. And there's no difference, whoever you are, high or low, male or female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, Black or white, rich or poor, there is no difference. Is that not what this is saying here? There is no rank, there is no superiority. How are guilty sinners justly condemned for their sin? How are they unworthy yet made the righteousness of God in Christ? In Jeremiah chapter 23, we read it here. Behold, verse 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And a king shall reign and prosper. That's him, king of kings and lord of lords. And shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. When the terms Judah and Israel are used in the Old Testament, in the New Testament regime, now you can read it as believing people, the Christian church, the people of God who believe him. They... they, This is the name whereby he, their Messiah, shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. And I showed you this quite some time ago, but I'll remind you. If you turn on 10 chapters, you don't need to do it, I'll do it. Chapter 33 and verse 16, uh, 33 and verse 16, God is talking about his people. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby she shall be called. In 23 verse 6, it was he shall be called. This is the name whereby she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. That's the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, the people of Christ. There's a marriage coming in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride of Christ takes the name of the bridegroom. He is called the Lord our righteousness. She is called the Lord our righteousness. How were we made the righteousness of God? Because of that great transaction. In verse 23, there's no difference. There's no difference. All have sinned. Whether you believe or you don't believe, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The very word sin, if, if you've ever done archery, uh, you, you might know the old word for your arrow not reaching far enough is that it sinned. It fell short. It didn't reach the target. All have fallen short of the target. All have come short of the glory of God. But his people justified freely by his grace. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Freely, freely. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come, buy without money and without price. Freely, freely being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. His people, who are his people? The multi-ethnic multitude. 
You look at other parts of scripture. A few months ago, we were in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, where John in his vision looks in heaven. I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. No man could number them. Of all nations and kindreds, not just Jews, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. They all stood They clearly were justified because they were in the presence of God. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb. In um, Romans chapter 9, I I won't take time to turn there now. Let's just carry on as well. But I was going to show you. Why are they? Not for anything they've done. It's not of him that wills nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. God said to Moses, I'll show you my glory. I will be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. These are the ones justified by God, made just with God, freely, without any price, without any cost to them, without money and without price. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And how is it done? Verse 24, it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is the release price. You know, when you've got items given over to an old-fashioned pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop, uh, so that you get some money until you get paid, and then you go and redeem those things back, you buy them back from their captivity at that shop, you pay the release. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did he pay it? By his death as a substitute, paying the price of the sins of his people, that the charge sheet might be cleared, that, uh, he, uh, that, that he might clear the charge sheet for those, as his word tells us again in Jeremiah chapter 33 and uh, verse 6, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. There's a multitude that we saw in heaven that God loved with an everlasting love and he justified them in the Lord Jesus Christ. The qualifying righteousness possessed by the people of God, that multitude that John saw in heaven, is entirely of him. It's entirely of him. This is God manifested in human flesh. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God who, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, he, our Lord Jesus Christ, is made of God unto us wisdom from God. Oh, how we need to understand what this life is really about. I know the majority think, along with the David Attenboroughs of this world, that this life is just about an accident, a big bang in a big primordial soup of molecules. No, it isn't. It's utterly impossible. They know themselves, honestly, they know themselves that that is utterly and completely impossible. And, and I can refer you to loads of stuff that will show you that without, without any shadow of a doubt. Why don't they believe it then? Why do they go that way? Because as Romans chapter 1 says, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They didn't want to do that. Oh, if you would have wisdom from God, you must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, we need righteousness. Well, he's made righteousness unto his people. And if you would be set apart for the holy service of God... He is the sanctification of his people. And if you would be redeemed from the curse of the law, he alone is the one who will redeem you from that curse. So the hymn writer says, Bold shall I stand in that great day, the day of judgment, when I'm judged, am I fit to be in God's kingdom? 
bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, while through thy blood absolved from all guilt, from all charge I am, from sin's tremendous curse and shame. The blood of Jesus Christ, as John says in his first epistle, cleanses us from all sin. So Romans 8, again Romans 8, 33, who shall lay anything? In that day of judgment, who shall stand up? You know, is there any cause or reason why this can't happen? And so who can stand up and say, he can't go into heaven because he's a sinner? Romans 8.33 says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Christ has died in his place. The penalty's paid. There is no debt outstanding. You cannot charge him again. Verse 25, So God has set him forth. God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. God has set him forth. God says, as it were, behold the man. It was Pontius Pilate that said that when he was being tried before he was crucified. Pontius Pilate said to them all, baying for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, behold the man. Here is God clothed in human flesh. Behold the man. Job asks, how should a man be just with God? And the answer comes, behold the man. God has set him forth. There is one God, says Paul to Timothy. There is one God and one mediator between God who is holy and man who is sinful. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And how does he mediate? How does he make peace between an offended holy God and sinners? How does he do it? Here it is set forth to be a propitiation, which is a mercy seat, a turning away of divine wrath. Because you know the psalm says God is angry with the wicked every day. And it's according to sins that are past, remission of sins that are past. That means sins, uh, declared sin under the law. The law, the purpose of the law is to show us what sin is. Paid for by God himself in Christ so that God remains righteous. He declares his righteousness. He still punishes every sin. So verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How is God righteous in forgiving sinners? You would say God is unjust. If he forgives a sinner and God never changes and God is perfectly just, how can God justify a sinner? The reason is he makes them the righteousness of God in him by Christ, God in Christ, paying the penalty at Calvary, as the Lamb, as Revelation 13, 8 says, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so another hymn, Augustus Toplady wrote this, If thou hast my discharge procured, discharge from the charges in the court of divine justice, if thou, my discharge, if thou hast my discharge procured, and freely in my room, in my place, endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, when Christ died, he, he, he required payment for my sin, and then he can't ask for it again, and then again at mine. But who is it for? Look what it says. Verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's the only way we know in this life who he did it for. 
his people believe in him, of him which believeth in Jesus. Jesus said in John 11 verse 26 and loads of other places, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Lord, I believe. We've heard that a couple of times in the prayers earlier. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And verse 27, where is boasting then? What are you going to boast in about how good a person you are? How good a Christian you are? How fitted for heaven you? It's excluded. There's no boasting. By what law? Of works? Because you're better than somebody else who didn't do the same works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of faith. I'll remind you of that story often told of Happy Jack, the poor man who discovers Christ. And they, he, he wants to join a church and the elders being very righteous people try and ask him what makes him fit to join the church. And all he keeps answering in reply to every one of their questions is, I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all. And in verses 28, 29 and 30, he says, God is the saviour of his people, whoever we are. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 31, do we then make void the law? Is the law of God of no purpose? Do we make it void through this thing called faith? God forbid. It is the faith of Jesus Christ and his people's faith in him, belief in him, that establishes, that accomplishes the purpose of the justice of God. Does it make it void? No, it establishes it. So remember the true gospel. The true gospel isn't a set of facts. The true gospel is a person. The true gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ and my life in him. Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You who believe that God's kingdom is your eternal home, that to be, as Paul says again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. You who believe that, if anyone asks you why you are so confident, here is the answer, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Saviour. Amen.